Welcome to Living the Questions, a podcast of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Cheyenne. Thank you for joining us. Here on Living the Questions, we wrestle. We wrestle with life's dilemmas, we wrestle with current events, and we wrestle with what it means to live lives of integrity. We hope that you find some community, some comfort, and some hope in this time together. To learn more about our congregation, you can visit our website at uucheyenne.org. Welcome all to this week's podcast. This week, our question for wrestling is, how can darkness bring healing? How can darkness bring healing? There are so, so, so many places and ways um, to go with this. So many questions for us to ask ourselves about the ways that darkness has been portrayed and sold to us as a bad thing, as a negative, as a problem. And so instead, this week, we are going to explore the purpose of darkness, the purpose of darkness in our lives, in our minds, in our spirits, and in our healing processes. So I am really excited and looking forward to exploring what this, uh, what this question can take us into. Let's get started. So to get us started diving into this question about how can darkness bring healing, um, we're going to get started talking about uh, not something that has happened in the past week, but instead something that is coming up. On November 1st, it will be time to fall back That's right, daylight savings time is coming to an end this weekend. Or maybe you're listening to this and daylight savings time has already ended. But either way, daylight savings time is this very curious phenomenon of modern life. And it's something that is so ubiquitous in many places, though not all, uh, here in the United States and across the world especially in places that are further from the equator. It's this thing that's so ubiquitous, so ever-present, that we sometimes don't stop to think about why we do it. And so daylight savings time is part of this effort to manage the darkness and the light. It's an effort to manage which hours of the day are dark and which hours of the day are light. And there's a lot of back and forth and disagreement about, you know, does it save energy? Does it save on electricity? Does it actually not save energy because we spend more on heating fuel and things like that than we do on the electricity to turn on the lights? Um, You know, does it promote, you know, an economic boost because there's more daylight hours to spend money? Or does it actually cause economic problems because, When we don't get enough sleep, we are more likely to crash our car. And that's also a problem. Right. So there's sort of all these like back and forth arguments about, you know, is daylight savings worth it? Should we be doing it? Where, where, like at what latitudes is it helpful? At what latitudes is it not helpful? Um, And there, oh heavens, the internet would love to tell you all about all of those arguments. I'm confident. 
But I think that underneath all of that kind of back and forth around, you know, is it effective policy? At the core of that, I, I hear this question about right, when should it be dark outside and when should it be light outside? And in terms of, right, when is it actually dark and when is it actually light, right? We cannot make the sun come up or go down in a different way. But what we can do is try to make our clock-based society somehow interface with those solar rhythms. And so, right, I just, I really see in Daylight Savings this urge, or not maybe not an urge, but, but a tension between the sort of industrialized, standardized hour or minute or day or whatever it is, and the cosmic reality or the solar system reality of what the sun and the earth and some combination of orbit and axial tilt and things like that are doing. So daylight savings is it's this it's this effort to somehow get those things to interface with each other. Because right hours, an hour in a day, or the hours of the day, have not always been standardized, right? That there was a time in human society when things like hours were flexible to match the movements of the sun and the longer amount of sunlight in a day or the shorter amount of sunlight in a day. And so I maybe see in this kind of tension an invitation to to reset our clocks. To reset our clocks, not to fall back or spring forward, but to reset our clocks to the rhythms around us. And that the idea that our day-to-day lives are somehow divorced from these seasonal rhythms is a right like that is a recent invention. And so I wonder right now how can we experience these seasonal shifts as an invitation to reconnect with natural rhythms? Because right the reality is it's just real that waking up at 6:30 a.m. in the middle of November and waking up at 6:30 a.m. in the middle of July those feel very different. And so so how can we actually try to respond to the rhythms around us um, rather than trying to manipulate the light and the dark in order to maximize our productivity? Because I don't know about you, but when I think about the healing that can take place sort of in that darkness and in that cocoon time, Maximizing my productivity is not the goal that I'm looking for. So as we explore the question of how can darkness bring healing, part of what is prompting this question is that this Sunday is uh, Samhain, which is the um, Celtic pagan holiday that morphed and was 
semi-Christianized and then secularized to become Halloween. And part of Samhain is the idea that the veil has thinned between the living and the dead. And so I wanted to ground our work in a, a time that Unitarians and Universalists got real into the thinning of the veil between the living and the dead. So I think that sometimes we perceive ourselves as these hyper-rational religious people, right? Like we're the religious people who are into science. And that's sort of true. And both Unitarians and Universalists in the second half of the 19th century, right? So in the period, you know, between 1850 and 1900, our people got really into spiritualism. And spiritualism is not just like they were generally spiritual, but spiritualism, capital S, was a movement in that time um, in parts of Europe and in the United States that that suggested that we could do things, we the living could do certain things and it would allow us to communicate with the dead, right? And this is the time that you see, right? Like seances become really popular here in the United States. And there's all this kind of um, new interest in mechanisms, in people, in practices that will help the living communicate with the dead. And I think this is an interesting time to sort of, right, look at a sidebar around how this is, right, an, an instance of um, also, right, like a lot of white people discovering ancestors and being like, wait, we could talk to them? Right, so just acknowledging that, um, that this is some of this, like the idea that this is somehow new or like a fad um, is another example of mostly white people suddenly discovering, quote unquote, something that other non-white people have been aware of for a long, long time. But anyhow, so Unitarians and Universalists during this time are, they like start getting into spiritualism. They start getting into these gatherings where we want to connect with the spirits. And it's interesting to see the way that this kind of trend in the second half of the 19th century influences the ways that we still today practice Unitarian Universalism. And I think one thing that's interesting is that I think now, as a Unitarian Universalists, we look back on spiritualism and are like, what nonsense that those people were into like seances and stuff. But at the time especially in its like some earlier stages of it, spiritualism was really connected with this idea that we wanted to like do our own investigation. We weren't going to take, you know, traditional Christian clergy. We weren't going to take other people at their word that this was somehow like the devil's work um, or that these were bad, like evil spirits. We wanted to do our own investigation into what it was like to communicate or to try to communicate with people beyond our knowing, with spirits beyond our, our sort of typical knowing. 
And so I eventually, right, this sense of investigation led Unitarian Universalists to reject a lot of the aspects of spiritualism, especially as it became a big vehicle for, um, you know, con artists and other stuff like that. But that for me, it's a reminder that our urge to investigate and our urge to understand the mysterious are interconnected with, you know, things like our relationship to beloveds who have died. And that being a Unitarian Universalist does not mean that you have to only believe, right, or only set stock in the things that science has said are like ironclad, but rather that we value our own personal experiences of exploring the world around us um, and that we want to understand not only sort of the physical or tangible or obvious realm around us, but we also want to understand the darkness. We want to understand the things that are beyond. We want to understand the things that are difficult to know. And that doesn't mean that we're going to get a firm answer, but it does mean that we have a history of practicing together to try to make sense of both our own world and the worlds that we can't always see. I want to start this part of our podcast with an acknowledgement that the metaphor of darkness has not always been tended responsibly in Unitarian Universalism and in other faith communities and in our society at large. Because we have really, really, really thoroughly cast darkness as bad, as evil, as, you know, the thing that is beyond the reach of the holy, and we have cast lightness and whiteness as good and as valuable and as desirable and as the the mark of God. Um, and in the episode description, I'll link um, a helpful reading by Unitarian Universalist religious educator and minister Jackie James that I think is um, instructive. But just to begin by saying that some of what we're doing here by asking the question, how can darkness bring healing, is inviting folks to work on our preconceived notions about the spiritual metaphor of darkness. And so as I as I've thought about right what the, that spiritual metaphor of darkness 
and how we so often cast it as, right, you, you have to move through the dark time in order to get to the light, or you need to shine the light in the dark corner of your heart or, or something like that. And instead, I, I wanted to begin from the place of how is darkness a site of healing? How is darkness a site of integration, of right of the, the coming together of disparate parts to create a more fully integrated, a more fully healed whole? And in thinking about that, I think I have just been thinking about all of the wonderful and amazing things that require darkness to happen. Right, things for which darkness is not like, well, it doesn't matter if it's light or dark, but things for which, right, darkness is absolutely essential to make some things happen. Right, uh, tulips and other bulb flowers, right, things like, you know, daffodils and irises and all that kind of stuff, right, that those flowers require darkness and cold in order to become their full flower selves. They need that time underground through the winter in order to become themselves. They have evolved to need the dark cold. And so as I thought about what darkness does for species like tulips and irises and daffodils and things like that, I also thought about what darkness does for us as humans. And one of the really, 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 really critical things that darkness does for us as human beings is that it helps us sleep. Right? Darkness, the literal like lessening of light, releases melatonin in our systems. Right, The sun going down sends our bodies, or at least those of us whose bodies are sort of functioning in the typical way, sends us a signal to release a chemical that will help us sleep. And... We need sleep. We need sleep in order to do so many things. So we need darkness in order to get to sleep and in order to stay asleep. And as I was just learning and reminding myself about all of these different things that sleep does for us, is that I was reminded that sleep is, the, is necessary to do something called memory consolidation. It sort of it sort of takes two different kinds of sleep in order for that process to like fully work. You need both um, some of the deeper stages of non-REM or rapid eye movement sleep and rapid eye movement sleep in order to perform this memory consolidation, right? In order to take all of these different pieces of the things that you've experienced, the people's names who you just met the new thing you learned in your math class, the date of your, you know, dog's birthday, whatever it is, right? All of those things that you need multiple kinds of sleep. You need this time of, of darkness and rest in order to just make your brain function like it's supposed to. What I think is really interesting is that in that REM sleep, that that like sort of deepest phase of sleep, your body, right, especially your arms and your legs, become paralyzed 
but your brain like goes bonkers. That's the time that your brain gets up to its, its like wildest stuff. And it's like your brain is up to such wild stuff that your body paralyzes your arms and legs so you don't get up to like wild stuff in bed or out of bed. So, right, so this time of darkness, this sleep time, these REM and non-REM and all like, all like, you know, science stuff about sleep, you need all of that time just in order to make your brain take your experiences and make sense of them. And so when I think about that, I think about what, what is possible when we allow ourselves to rest, right? When we allow ourselves to rest, when we allow ourselves to become vulnerable, because we are vulnerable when we're sleeping. It's vulnerable to have your arms and legs paralyzed, um, or it's vulnerable to be in that deepest stage of non-REM sleep when it's pretty difficult to wake you up. Right when, but we have to allow ourselves to become vulnerable, to rest, to allow our bodies to take a different posture, in order to integrate our experiences. Or as I have occasionally thought about it, as I've been wrestling with this question, to allow the veil between what we think we know and what we do not yet know to get thinner. Right, and like I said at the beginning, Samhain is about this idea that the the veil uh, between the living world and the world of spirits or the world of the dead or however it's framed gets thin. So as that veil between the living and the dead, between the physical and the spirit worlds gets thin, I wonder about what other veils can get thinner in the darkness. And I think about the veil between the present and the past or the veil between the present and the future, or the veil between the things that seem certain and the things that seem mysterious or unknowable. Right, that in the darkness, those veils get thin. And we are able to access kinds of learning and knowledge that are unavailable to us in the full light of day. Right? Things that are, are unknowable or that we couldn't put together by the light of day. Somehow when it is dark and we are vulnerable and we are still, in those moments, we are able to find some way to make sense of things that we just can't make sense of otherwise. And when we are engaged in some kind of healing process, right, when we are trying to understand some tragedy, some harm, some hurt, 
that has been done to us or that we have done to others, when we're trying to understand how it is that we can take our experiences, our pain, and move forward with it, right? Not erase it, not totally get rid of a painful experience, but to, to understand it, to integrate it into who we are in a way that allows us to move forward. That those times of darkness, those times of stillness, are absolutely essential to being able to, to do that work. And, I, and right then that's true at a, like a neurological level, right? That's true in terms of memory consolidation, in terms of just allowing our synapses to make sense of our, our experiences. But I think it's also true in terms of our spirits, in terms of our souls, that when there has been harm and hurt and pain, as there is in all of our lives at different times, when there has been that kind of hurt, we need a time of darkness. We need a time when we can let the veils between what we think we know and what we don't yet know get thin. We need time where our bodies can slow down, can be still, can become vulnerable in a safe environment, and can help us understand things about who we are and how we are that we would never know if we didn't let ourselves slow down and become still and feel the heavy embrace of darkness. Let it teach us about what it means to move forward. I'll close us with this blessing from Jan Richardson or an excerpt from a blessing by Jan Richardson. She writes, But this is what I can ask for you that in the darkness there be a blessing, that in the shadows there be a welcome, that in the night you be encompassed by the love that knows your name. May it be so. Amen. Thank you for listening. Your presence matters to us. Whether you are here in Cheyenne or across the globe, we are grateful that you would spend this time with us. If you'd like to connect more with our community, you can visit our website at uucheyenne.org. I'm the Reverend Hannah Roberts Vilnave, and on behalf of a grateful community, thank you. We'll see you soon. <laughs>